Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students by medical students. In today's discussion, we'll be covering chronic ischemic limb. So as I alluded to in our previous talk on acute ischemic limb, vascular disease can be divided into arterial and vascular subtypes. And within the arterial subtype, there are two key things that you need to be aware of. There's the acute arterial occlusions, which we've talked about already. And there's the chronic arterial occlusion or insufficiency, which we'll talk about today. And that refers to chronic limb ischemia, where the symptoms of ischemic limb are present for greater than two weeks. And this can eventually progress to critical limb ischemia, which warrants immediate management. In terms of vascular disorders that we'll talk about in the future, deep venous thrombosis is one that you might have heard. Superficial venous thrombosis, varicose veins, and chronic venous insufficiencies are other disorders to be aware of. Now, before we talk about the pathogenesis of chronic ischemic limb, let's briefly revise the lower limb arterial anatomy. So the lower limb arteries are supplied by the common iliac, which divides into the internal iliac and the external iliac. External iliac travels down inferior to the inguinal ligament and becomes the femoral artery, which then becomes the popliteal. And the popliteal divides into the posterior tibialis and the anterior tibialis. And these arteries supply the lower limb vasculature. Now, in terms of the arteries itself, there are three artery types you need to be familiar with. There's the elastic arteries, which are the largest arteries closest to the heart. These guys help push blood forward and maintain blood pressure as they relax. There's the muscular arteries, which is the medium-sized vessels that direct blood flow to organs, and they can change the diameter to control blood flow. And there are the arterioles, which are the small arteries that distribute blood to individual capets. So in terms of the histology, the tunica externa is the outer layer, and that's comprised of collagen and elastic fibers. There's the tunica media, which is the middle layer, and that's composed of small muscles mixed with elastic fibers. And in arteries, it's separated from the other tunics by the external and internal elastic layers. The tunica interna is the most inner layer, and that's composed of endothelium and the supporting basement structure. We've already alluded to this in our talk on acute ischemic limb, but let's compare the different layers in veins and arteries. So in the tunica interna, it's thin in veins, but it's thicker with greater basement membrane in arteries. In the tunica media, it has less smooth muscles in veins, but it's thicker with greater smooth muscles and elastic compartments in arteries. And the tunica externa has greater thickness in veins, but it's thinner in arteries, but greater elastic component again in arteries as well. Now the key pathogenesis related to chronic ischemic limb revolves around atherosclerosis, which is the aggregation of fats and cholesterol within the artery. And the main risk factor for atherosclerosis is hyperlipidemia. Now this lipidemia causes endothelial dysfunction and the development of atherosclerosis, which results in progressive narrowing of the affected vessels. This can result in exposure of the subendothelial material, which can trigger platelet activation and partial or complete occlusion of the affected vessel. This can be helped along by key risk factors such as smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and an increasing age. So in terms of the signs and symptoms of chronic ischemic limb, it's worthwhile to compare chronic ischemic limb with acute ischemic limb. So chronic ischemic limb is characterized by collocation, which is pain on activity, which is then relieved by rest. It's a highly reproducible pain, so a patient can walk to the mailbox, experience the pain, come back, rest, and the pain improves. Now, critical ischemic limb refers to when there's resting pain, night pain, and ulcerations. And the pain can wake the person up from sleep and can be improved when the person hangs their feet off the bed as the gravity pulls blood vessels down into the legs. I like to consider critical ischemic limb as sort of unstable angina and claudication as angina if you're familiar with the cardiac pathologies. In conjunction to claudication, patients can also experience rituals pulse or an absent pulse, for example, in the dorsalis pedis or posterior tibialis. They can experience hair loss, 
A slow capillary refill and Burgers test can be positive on examination. Compare this to acute ischemic limb, where the symptoms develop very quickly in a matter of minutes to hours. And remember the six P's that I've alluded to in the previous talk. Patients can present with pain, pallor, paresthesia, paralysis, poculothermia, so they can have cold limbs, and pulselessness. And if the disease goes long enough without adequate intervention, patients can develop rhabdomyolysis and compartment syndrome. Now, looking at the diagnosis, it can be made based on the history and physical examination, but there are some differential diagnoses that you need to have in the back of your mind. You want to rule out neurogenic causes, such as lumbar stenosis, venous disease, such as deep vein thrombosis, which is more of an acute presentation, but in chronic cases, varicose veins and insufficiencies are things you need to consider. And other less common causes include popliteal entrapment syndrome and vasculitis. So in terms of investigations, you want to start with the easy things first. So let's look at urine electrolytes and urea. You want to look at the patient's renal function, particularly if you're considering imaging further down the track. You want to look at their lipid studies to consider risk factor modifications. And you also want to consider an arterial brachial index, which looks at the pressure of the ankle compared to the arm. Normally, the lower limb has a higher blood pressure than the upper limb because of the effect of gravity. A ratio of 0.095 is considered normal, but if a ratio of arterial brachial index is less than 0.9, that's considered abnormal. A ratio less than 0.3 is where patients develop resting pain with impending tissue death. You also want to work them up a little bit further by using imaging, such as the use of handheld Dopplers, which looks at um, occlusion and blood flow. You want to look at duplex ultrasound, which can assess the blood flow and the velocity. And so if there's narrowing of the lumens affected, the blood flow rate increases because of that narrowing. And finally, you can consider more invasive imaging studies, such as a CTU or MR angiography, which requires the use of contrast, so you have to use that with caution in patients with renal dysfunction. And more invasively, you can consider retrograde percutaneous arteriography and angiography if the index of suspicion is quite high. This uses less contrast, but it's more invasive as you need to access the femoral arteries. But while you're there, you can also treat patients with this procedure. Now, talking about treatment, in terms of the approach and treatment for chronic limb ischemia, conservative management is first line. So you want to manage the risk factors, managing hypertension with an ACE inhibitor if there's no contraindications, managing the lipid profiles using statin therapy and diet and lifestyle modification, managing their diabetes and strict blood glucose control and monitoring, and encouraging patients to give up smoking if they're smokers. Other non-pharmacological management approaches include exercise regimens, which improve the development of collateral circulation and muscle oxygen utilization efficiencies. And this can take six to 12 months for a compliant patient to see results. And also you want to refer them to podiatry and encourage them to monitor and care for their foot hygiene to prevent the risk of ulcers and damage associated with paresthesia and chronic limb ischemia. Now, from a pharmacological point of view, antiplatelet therapies are first line, and you can use aspirin, and if there's contraindications, clopidogrel is another option. Clopidogrel is slightly more effective, but it's also more expensive. Now, you could be wondering whether there's any indication for the use of warfarin or the newer agents. Oral anticoagulants have not been shown to be more superior to aspirin, and there's obviously that increased risk of bleeding as well. As I alluded to already, you want to use statins to help control lipid profiles and stabilize atherosclerotic plaque, and you can consider the use of acidilators such as clearstazole, which can improve claudication in some patients. If that hasn't helped, then you may start considering more invasive interventions. This is usually indicated where there's inadequate response to conservative management, so using claudication and exercise regimens, or if the claudication impacts the patient's quality of life, so they can't go to work, they can't exercise, they can barely mobilize, or if the lesion can be remedied at a low risk with a high likelihood of initial and long-term success with these interventions. 
There are a couple of different types of interventions. So you have percutaneous and surgical. And the type that you go with really depends on the location of revascularization, the extent of the disease, and the patient's surgical risk as well. Unfavorable sites for percutaneous interventions include the long segment stenosis occlusion or multifocal eccentric calcification and stenosis. In terms of percutaneous interventions, endovascular, it's kind of like your angioplasty where you access the affected artery, you place a balloon into that segment, inflate, and hopefully resume circulation. And you can also place a stent to prevent occlusion once the balloon is taken out. Some patients may need revascularizations after six to eight years following this procedure. Now, as I've alluded to already, surgical is your next option. For it to be successful, you need appropriate vessels above and below the obstruction to ensure that you can suture a graft or a bypass the obstruction. There's endorectomy where you actually physically remove the plug by sending in a device into the affected artery. This can leave a raw area, which increases the risk of thrombosis. And so there's a risk of re-occlusion after the procedure. As I alluded to, bypass is a form of surgical intervention. And long-term graft patency really depends on the length of the graft and the material used. In general, autogenous saponous vein results in the best outcome for patients. Immediate success is around 90%, and synthetic graft options are available where there's no autologous or suitable autologous veins available. In terms of post-surgical interventions, antiplatelet agents can be helpful in preventing graft occlusion. The greatest benefit is seen in prosthetic grafts where dual antiplatelet therapy is indicated. If there's evidence of gangrene though, if it's wet gangrene, then you want to try to debride the wound and dress the wound. If there's dry gangrene, aim to revascularize and manage the wound with dressing to minimize risk of reinfections. But if the gangrene is beyond intervention, amputation is your final line. In approximately 25% of critical limb ischemic patients, amputation occurs within the first year. Now you may be wondering, well, what's the prognosis long-term? So in patients with stable claudication, 70 to 80% remain stable and around 10 to 20% can worsen in terms of their claudication symptom. Prognosis is the worst in patients with diabetes who have an amputation rate five to 10 times higher than their non-diabetic counterpart. Now this brings our presentation to an end. I hope you found this useful. If you like our work, please like us on Facebook, write us a rating on iTunes, and get in contact with us through our Facebook and website. We look forward to you joining us in our next episode. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer, Gautam, and our core editor, Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on the commonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.